All right, so I want to start with an exercise. Think for a moment about whether you've ever been asked a trick question. A question that you realized was either designed to trap you or that at least gave you no good options in answering it. I see some nods already. Well, this happens to me about three times a day at home when my two sons come thundering into the room with some conundrum, some crisis that they want me to solve. And it usually involves me choosing between them. For example, mom, am I faster or is Isaiah? Mom, do I get to pick the TV show or does David? Mom, do you like my picture best or his? It's, it's tough, but maybe if you're a parent in the room, you're thinking, no, no, that's weak sauce because the parent answer is obvious. I like both of your pictures the best and nobody gets to pick the TV show because I'm picking it and it's gonna be something very, very quiet and boring. But what about harder questions that we do face in our lives, like seemingly two difficult options to choose from at work, where each choice will cost you something and you're the one that has to decide for you or for your team? Or what about when you're trying to figure out who to vote for and there are two seemingly not great options? <laughs> or when you're sitting down for Thanksgiving dinner and your weird uncle says, hey, who did you vote for and why? Now maybe your weird uncle is really gracious and just curious, or maybe you know he's trying to pick a fight. But either way, we understand this tension, right? Sometimes the whole truth just doesn't fit neatly into an either-or scenario. This is similar to the situation where Jesus finds himself in today's gospel reading. He's been cornered by two groups of people who ask a seemingly straightforward either-or question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And before we get to how Jesus answers, let me just provide a little more context about the question itself. These two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're not genuinely asking Jesus to solve a problem. They're not like my sons, hoping that I will arbitrate their disagreement. These groups are teaming up against Jesus to bring him down because they know, or they think, that whatever answer he gives them, whether he supports the tax or not, either way, Jesus is going to get in trouble. Here's why. The Pharisees know that if Jesus tells his followers to pay tax to Caesar, they're going to be disillusioned. Because Jesus has built his ministry on the promise that he is here to establish a kingdom that will counter Caesar's, the kingdom of God. The Jews hoped that through the Messiah, whom Jesus claimed to be, God would displace the puppet kings of men as they saw it and rescue his people from foreign oppression. So why would the Messiah, if he's the real deal, why would he ask us to keep paying taxes to Caesar? If Jesus caves to the current political milieu, then he's not who we thought he was, and we can all go home. Jesus loses his influence among the Jewish people, and the Pharisees will be at the top of the religious food chain once again. They'll get what they want. But on the other hand, if Jesus plays the expected Messiah card, if he says don't pay taxes to this idolatrous Roman system, then the Herodians, who represent the political status quo, they'll label Jesus an insurrectionist and have him arrested. Then Jesus and his Jewish kingdom movement will be squelched, and Rome can stop worrying about a potential uprising among the people. In other words, from either perspective, 
Jesus questioners feel that this is a win-win scenario. Either way Jesus answers, he's going to be neutralized. Now here's what I find fascinating and honestly a little bit exciting about this trap. These two warring factions, the Pharisees and the Herodians, which you could say represent an ancient version of the religious right and the progressive left, to see these two groups team up against Jesus reveals that they both felt threatened by him. I think this reveals a lot about who God is and how he operates, that both secular and religious forces experience Jesus as a threat to their power. What do I mean by that? I mean, God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't tow party lines or pander to a voter base. He is an equal opportunity offender, even when that means offending his own people, the Jews. And yes, Jesus is even willing to offend the church. Jesus handles power differently than any leader the world has ever seen. And I want to suggest this morning that that is exactly why you can trust him. So that's where we're headed. In light of this passage in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to reflect on the nature of Jesus' power, how he wields it, and what that means for us. We've already begun to see the nature of Jesus' power in that it destabilizes the status quo. He doesn't fit neatly into the boxes of right or left. And for that reason, he creates unlikely allies. Now we see here those who team up in opposition to Jesus. But think also about the many people in the Gospels who team up in allegiance to Jesus. The power of Jesus' ministry can be seen in the sheer diversity of his followers. Among the men he first calls to serve as his disciples are a tax collector and a zealot, political opposites. Among his closest friends are poor fishermen, and wealthy businesswomen, social opposites. Eventually, Jesus' followers would become a family of Jews and Gentiles, ethnic and religious opposites. In other words, the early church was a staggering witness to Jesus' power to unite divided peoples under one name. And brothers and sisters, don't we need to see that kind of power in the world today? Aren't we desperate for it? If you've turned on the news in the last week or two, you know the answer to this is yes. We are desperate for Jesus' power because where politicians and parties and peace treaties fail, Jesus wins because his power is ultimately not of this world. It can accomplish, as the book of Ephesians tells us, more than we could ask or even imagine. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we need. And Lord, we pray that even now you would come by your power and bring peace to the divided, desperate people of our world, and especially in the Middle East. Amen. This is the power that we need, but there's a catch. We don't get to control it or its agenda. We don't put Jesus on our banner. He calls us to walk under his. And as we do that, we might be surprised about where we're going or by who is suddenly walking with us, or maybe even by who is suddenly upset with us. In other words, following Jesus is a little bit destabilizing. It's uncomfortable. 
But I think this is better than the alternative. It's better to be uncomfortable than it is to be in control. Because the truth is, we're not as good at being in control as we think we are. We think we have the solution to the world's problems, or at least to our neighbor's problems, or our family's problems, or even just our own problems. We tend to think that if Jesus would just listen to us and to our ideas and plans, that things would be great. The truth is we're all guilty of this. We all try from time to time to get Jesus to say what we want him to say, don't we? Maybe that's just me. We may not all have the same ulterior motives as the Herodians and the Pharisees, but we all devise plans that we want Jesus to sign off on. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. In spite of this, Jesus' leadership is still safe for us because he will not be manipulated by us or anyone else. Look at verse 16. This is what his questioners say to him. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Do you see what they're doing? They're trying to butter him up. So tell us what you think. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Here's where we begin to see not only the nature of Jesus' power, but also how he wields it. And notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't fall into their trap by succumbing to their flattery. In other words, Jesus has no ego to trip him up. He already passed that test in the wilderness when Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and said, all this can be yours if you will just worship me. Jesus doesn't need to make bargains with anyone to get or keep favor. He doesn't wield power like a currency that he's afraid of losing because he's not insecure. He doesn't need the approval or the protection of anyone in the room, even now. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus doesn't need our approval or our protection? I hope that feels liberating to you because it means that in addition to not being manipulated, Jesus won't try to manipulate you because he doesn't need anything from you. Think for a minute with me about a typical presidential debate, if you can stomach it this early in the morning. Candidates are up there, they're getting asked questions, and then a hard one comes to somebody, and what typically happens when they get a hard question? They either avoid it entirely and just slide right back into their talking points, or they say maybe what they think most people in the room want to hear, you know, they're pandering to their base, Or maybe they try to say the thing that will make the least amount of people upset. Even if it's not that impressive, at least they haven't made people angry. Why do politicians do this? Is it because they're stupid and they don't know how to answer complex questions? No, it's because they want to win, right? They need votes. They need large amounts of people to like them, which is part of why nobody trusts them. But friends, Jesus doesn't need our votes. And when he gets a hard question, he doesn't try to slip out of it or simply appease people. Rather, he gives an answer that confounds us all. When asked about paying taxes to Caesar, this is how Jesus responds. This is verse 18. He says, show me the coin for the tax. Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. 
Then he said to them, then render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. Because Jesus isn't worried about preserving any status quo, he's able to operate from a different paradigm. He exposes the faulty premise that demands a yes-no answer to this question, and he offers instead a new premise. And really, this is classic Jesus, right? People often ask him a question, and he says, well, that's the wrong question. And that's what he's doing here. And again, this question is all about power. Jesus' interlocutors are asking, in essence, should your disciples yield to the power of the state, or should they fight it? And Jesus answers, they should do neither of those things, because my kingdom, my people, don't play by those rules at all. So sure, this coin has Caesar's face on it. Give it back to him. It's clearly his. But that doesn't mean you have to give him what he really wants, which is your ultimate allegiance. That belongs to God alone. In his sermon on the same story from the Gospel of Mark, Tim Keller says that what Jesus is doing here is introducing the limited power of the state, which was a completely new concept in world history. Up to this point, there was no such thing as limited government. Kings and rulers, they had total power over their citizens' lives. Religious, civic, social, and political life were all of one piece in the ancient world. Now, we know this was the case for Israel, but it was also, in a way, the case for Rome. And it explains why Caesar's coin, which was used for the tax, had the inscription on it that Jesus references. So in addition to Caesar's face, if you can imagine, like the face of the queen, I was just in England and I saw that on their coins. In addition to Caesar's face, this coin said, Tiberius Caesar son of the god Augustus, high priest. Caesar didn't just want to be obeyed as king. He wanted to be worshipped as god. And in a way, that's what the tax was all about, which is why it was hated so much by the Jews. It wasn't about the money so much as it was about the power, the fealty to Caesar that it symbolized. So Jesus subverts that by saying, give back to Caesar what has his image on it, but only that. In other words, honor the government, but remember that its power, its claim on you, is not ultimate. This ethic we know shaped the early church, and ironically, it's part of what made it so powerful, right? Because Christians lived peaceably in society, but they weren't totally complicit with the system. So they paid taxes, but they didn't stop preaching the gospel. They adhered to Roman household codes, but they subverted them from within by treating the lesser members of their households as their equals. They obeyed human institutions, but only up to a point, because their obedience to God came first. Now you can see how this might get a little complicated. Because how did the early Christians, and even today, how do we discern exactly how this works? Where do we draw those lines when it comes to our primary allegiance? It's a great question. And I don't have time to speak to it today, but I just want to point out that Jesus' answer here allows us the room to wrestle with that tension. In fact, his answer is ambiguous enough to force us into the tension 
because Jesus doesn't give us a simplistic answer. He doesn't say, do everything Caesar asks of you. Nor does he say, reject Caesar entirely and revolt against him. He calls us into a relationship with worldly power that requires discernment. Let me say that again. Jesus calls his followers into a relationship with worldly power that requires our discernment. Earlier, I mentioned Tim Keller's sermon on this passage, and I highly recommend it to you. He puts it like this. He says that in his answer about paying taxes to Caesar, Jesus rejects three things. He rejects political simplicity, so our engagement with politics does require nuance. He rejects political complacency, so we can't all just go and live off the grid as much as some of you I know want to. And he rejects political primacy. So kings and presidents come and go, but our hope is in the fact that Jesus is Lord. I found that list very helpful. Not easy, but helpful. So let's return to this notion of power and how Jesus handles it. He's not in the pocket of any people group or party. He isn't manipulated by flattery. And therefore, he can call us up into something different as well into a new, nuanced relationship with the power structures around us. And I want to reflect on the fact that this whole conversation happened because Jesus' opponents wanted to take him out, right? They wanted him neutralized, imprisoned, or invalidated, or even dead. And in the end, even though they couldn't trick Jesus into it, they did get what they wanted. Just a few chapters after this conversation, we know Jesus would be betrayed by his friend Judas and handed over to the men who would crucify him. He would be publicly denounced and executed as a criminal. And on the day of his death, it would seem like Caesar really was the true power holder here, or at least that Jesus wasn't the one he claimed to be. But what Jesus' enemies, and I think even his friends, failed to understand was that Jesus' death was not a defeat. It was a demonstration of what he'd been saying all along. My kingdom, my power, my strategies are not of this world. By putting him on a cross, Jesus' opponents thought they were putting an end to his influence. But in reality, they were unleashing it. In other words, Jesus beat the world at its own game by handing himself over to death and then waking up three days later. Jesus inaugurated his kingdom through the very means his enemies thought would squelch it. He gave up his reputation and even his life because he knew his father would give it back to him. He knew that he would be vindicated, not by the court of public opinion, but by God himself, who, as the New Testament says, has raised Jesus and given him a name above every name. Friends, Jesus doesn't play by the rules of worldly power because he doesn't need to. He's bringing a new world. That's a beautiful story, isn't it? But here's where I want to close. The fact that this is not just a story. This is our story. Jesus is our king, and he has called us to render to him what is him, what is his, which is us. He's asking for our allegiance. We, who 
unlike Jesus, care so much about fitting in with our people or with being flattered and thought well of. We who are so preoccupied with not being put on a cross, we are called to live by a power that is foreign to us. We're called to give ourselves over to the one whose image we bear and in the process to be made more like him. Allegiance to Jesus may not always go well for us in the short term. It may not immediately make us more comfortable or more popular. Walking in his power might feel like you're just giving it away. It might feel like a cross. In fact, it probably will. But as you take those steps of obedience to him, I want you to remember that Jesus has already proven two things, his character and his competence. His character is trustworthy. He will not wield his power to hurt or manipulate you. But also his competence is indisputable. His kingdom and his methods are not of this world, but they do work. They raised him from the dead. And that same power, that same spirit that raised Jesus also lives in you. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for loving us enough to come and to live by a different logic than the one we wanted for you. Thank you for coming and loving us enough to offend us and to bring in a new world, a new power that we so badly need. We ask that you would send that power now by your spirit to transform us. And I pray in closing with the Apostle Paul. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him, to you, O Lord, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.